Hey fellow human beings, this is Future Fossils, I'm Evan Snyder. I'm Michael Garfield, and we are super delighted for this third episode to bring you our first guest, the author, sociologist, and awesome human being, Tony Vigorito. Somebody I met uh, a few years ago while speaking at Burning Man. Uh, he and I were on the same stage at Entheon Village, which was the for a while there, the hub of visionary art and culture at Burning Man, and we, we were on a panel about the evolution of consciousness together. So really, I, I, yeah, I feel like all of our conversations are a continuance of that first conversation, and it's super delightful to have you join us today, Tony. How are you doing? Thanks a lot, Michael. I'm happy to be here. What are you, um, what are you up to these days, sir? These days, I completed my third novel. Um, working on publishing that as we speak, and preparing to get married this uh, this coming summer, uh, and all the planning that that requires. As it turns out, it's a bit like having a second job. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, I'm just really enjoying myself here in Northern California, and decided to learn the ukulele. Ah. As uh, and the reason is that we want to include that in our nuptials at some level. So, I have my first ukulele lesson tomorrow. Cool. <laughs> is she going to play uke also and like do like a uke duel? We're actually both going to be learning the ukulele and and the harmonica. I already play the harmonica, um, but yeah, we want to be able to play both sides of that instrumentation and yeah, just write a few songs together and. Have a couple of highly portable instruments that we can take with us when we travel or go to parties or anything else like that. But um, <clears throat> you know, it's nice to have sort of a goal um, six months from now um, to have you know reached a certain level of proficiency anyway, where we can at least do a, a couple of numbers for the wedding. So, in fact, it's uh, I'll be taking ukulele lessons from uh, a friend of mine who I first met. He had initially read um, my books. He lives uh, in Sebastopol, not far from me. And, um, yeah, I met him, and uh, he asked me to do uh, to record a, a guest spoken word segment on a song that he was recording for a new album, which I happily did, and... Yeah, now he's going to give me ukulele lessons. Fair trade. That sounds like a pretty fair trade, yeah. So, you know, Evan, I know you know this because I, I sent you some of Tony's writings, uh, short writings, some of your essays, Tony, yeah. before this talk. Uh, but it seemed like... I, so I was considering, uh, in the few days since we recorded our last podcast, how already... You know, we didn't really know what this show was going to be about. We knew... True getting into it that, uh, I mean, this entire podcast, you know, we're, we're both obsessed with time and, and legacy and responsibility and the deep past and the deep future, science fiction, calendars, clocks, all of this stuff. Uh, but little did I know that the life that we trust these conversations to take that sort of uh, in, transcend and include us as individuals seems to already be taking on a particular sh shape that I noticed our, our first chat, Evan was mostly about 
Chronos. You know, we were discussing the the actual topography of time and like the landscape of time, the measurement of it. Indeed, yeah. And then, and then this last one was about more about the texture, the quality of time, the experience of it, mm. kind of more of a feminine or or kairos. So it seems in in kind of a sacred geometry of numbers way, utterly perfect that we have you on, Tony, uh, as our first guest for this third episode because. Uh, Three is the number of synthesis, and so much of your writing involves synchronicity and this nonlinear approach to time, sort of transcend and include both the the clock time and the natural cycle, like lunar rhythm of menstrual time, if you will. And there's there's something uh, awesomely personal and human, but also transcendental about the way that you you work with time in your books and, I, and I'd love to I'd love to just kick it off there and see what you why you know what is it in your history that has led you into this desire to express this kind of stuff in your writing in uh, correspondence with another friend of mine who is also a writer he sort of brought that to my attention um, very recently for the first time that sort of characteristic of my writing you know as a as a writer I'm, I'm sure you can also relate your large, your conscious mind is largely oblivious as to you know why you are creating the things that you're creating, or why you are writing in the way that you're writing. Uh, in any event, <clears throat> he offered me this term from um, Buddhism, and it's called the interpenetration of realities. And uh, I guess this term describes how. Uh, at any given moment, we're actually operating on multiple levels of reality. We sort of experience it in this, you know, relative, relatively consistent consensus reality. But in fact, we're also experiencing uh, our entire history, our entire future. Not only not only that, but also our dreams and our imagination. All of that is coming to bear in each present moment. Uh, and so, for me, I think that's you know that that's sort of where this fascination with synchronicity comes from is the the notion that there is so much more going on in any given moment than we ever give it credit for, right? And that if we admit more information than we normally or otherwise would, we sort of start getting a sense. Of, of everything else that's happening and how there is, in fact, you know, a life to be experienced that is just saturated in meaning. Absolutely. This is a great synthesis of our last two conversations, Michael. And Tony, thanks for your your intro of your thoughts there, man. That uh, alone could give us uh, several hours here, I'm sure, to, to chew on. If I'm ever just sort of artfully dodging your questions, um, you know, feel free to follow up on that and and you know, don't allow me to just get carried away with my own uh, formulations. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're our guest, so that, that's part of why you're here, man, is, is that exact reason. And, and Michael and I do that uh, on our own. Uh, I'm happy to take a back seat for now, and, and uh, I'll have a few things along these lines, especially given your, uh, your essay that Michael sent me entitled The Cathedral of Eternity, Chaos, Synchronicity, and the Technology of Magic which I think we should really link to in this podcast in the description, and I really encourage everybody to read. It's uh, very much a reflection, I think, of a lot of our experiences. So, Yeah, actually, Tony, when I think 
I first heard you speak, it was on the topic of synchronicity. You know, you were you were discussing. First of all, like we have this sort of inescapable scientific reality that this term synchronicity, which has taken on kind of a woo-woo flavor uh, by its abuse in the New Age community, you know that that uh, it's 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 actually totally normal that things happen together. You know, I mean, we don't need to. M- make metaphysical the conversation around quantum entanglement or even simply around the co-occurrence of events you know how how similar minds with similar experiences may have similar ideas at similar times like the way that charles darwin and alfred russell wallace sort of co-discovered the theory of natural selection so on the one hand there's this this thing that's like oh okay well the fact that something seemingly causally unrelated to this other thing happens together with it. Uh, that's kind of basic and mundane. But then there's this other part of it where you were talking about a series of experiences that you'd had where that, that inexplicable relationship where you know the mind does not yield an obvious chain of cause and effect in the experiences of your life and and sort of magical things started happening to you and you were talking about how you were trying to run it through in your head that this is just something that the brain does when you're going through a difficult experience that you're <laughs> that that uh it's like your body's defense response to try and find a pattern when things are chaotic and so I'd love to hear you riff about that and specifically the relationship between the chaos and the novelty and our ability to, you know, find or not find a pattern in things and whether this is, you know, merely in our heads or whether it points to something greater. These are all cool questions that we could pick apart in the next few. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I, I remain astounded at that particular period of my life and I, I, I still don't really have any and I, I, don't, I don't expect that I will ever settle on any um, solid explanation of, of what the phenomenon of synchronicity is all I can do is sort of is, is reflect back on it and, and, and you know as you know the story is essentially that I decided I was going to write a novel about synchronicity. That was my second book. And, you know, approximately one-third or one-half of the way into the book, I found myself very, very dissatisfied with how it was turning out. I, was, I felt like I was writing about this phenomenon that I recalled from an earlier phase of my life, but that I wasn't really experiencing in my present life. And I read a, you know, I read a dozen or two dozen books on the topic, and I had a lot to say about it, but I hadn't, I didn't have a lot of experience in my daily life. And in the midst of, you know, writing this book, in fact, just a couple of weeks after I vocalized this frustration, um, I I went through a painful breakup, uh, a relationship that had lasted about a decade, um, just very suddenly sort of disintegrated. And so what happens when a person goes through 
uh, a sort of transformation like that. When a relationship disintegrates, at one level what's occurring is there's a, a structure of your mind that is dis, we can break the words apart, disintegrating, right? In other words, the, the integration that my consciousness had held, the structure that kind of guided my daily experience was you know, very suddenly decimated. And in the absence of that, I found myself curiously much, much more open to input, right? In other words, information that I might have otherwise ignored on a daily basis um, was not, you know, and when I say ignore, I don't mean to imply any kind of intentionality. I just wouldn't have noticed what the radio happened to be saying when it passed by me on those streets, you know, or I wouldn't have noticed what the conversation was of a passing stranger, right? But in this in this new state of consciousness where I didn't have uh, my the, the structures of mind that I've become so accustomed to, um, suddenly all this all this input was making it through my filters, and a lot of that input what I found was extremely relevant to my to my experience, and this is the sort of the most mundane sort of psychological level explanation of synchronicity is that it doesn't really matter if you can come up with some mystical explanation for why it's occurring. If it has meaning for the individual, then it's relevant. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not, a, it's actually not fair to debate whether or not it's real in anything, in any kind of objective sense, if such a thing even exists, Right. Yeah, and uh, in any event, it was um, it was a truly remarkable and mag- uh, yeah, I would even go so far as to say magical um, phase of my life that has certainly faded in its intensity as new structures of mind have you know have sort of you know put themselves into place. But you know, it doesn't really require something as traumatic as a painful breakup to you know to achieve this. You know, people report in the psychological literature. People report synchronistic experiences at the beginning of a love relationship, at the end, death of a loved one, or even something uh, something like traveling is sufficient to upset your um, structures of mind such that you become open to new information. Um, I tend to linger in the, um, I suppose, the most mundane explanations of synchronicity, but I don't want you to think that I'm not open to the more mystical explanations as well. I mean, um, the, re- the sort of recurring theme in my second novel, Nine Kinds of Naked, which was about synchronicity, was this recurring phrase of, there is only one moment. Uh, and what I was attempting to capture with this phrase, there is only one moment, is that um, I think I think it was Plato that said, "Time is the moving image of eternity." And what that means is that everything, you know, the Big Bang is this event. You know, we could call it creation, right? Uh, or we could call it the universe. But it's just this event. It's there is only one moment, and it happened, and it's happening, right? The Big Bang is not however many billion years in the past. Right, but it's right now. It's this is 
what's happening, and we are at the most far-flung, most creative edges of that uh, transcendental tsunami. I, I often feel like a transcendental tsunami. Sure, and, and don't we all at, at, at some point, you know? like uh, Cool. Um, yeah, so, so with that said, um, Tony, that, that was a, um, a great ride through uh, the experiential and uh, I think pr more pragmatic aspects of synchronicity. And, and one thing it really made me think of was uh, in the more biological, you know, Darwinian evolutionary sense, that uh, say if a certain uh, food source became unavailable for a species, uh, take for example one of our ancestors, it would be somewhat akin to losing a, a partner or a job or uh, some other resource uh, that we ascribe to more Western values now, uh, or, or modern cultural human values in general, um, that uh, at some point there was that first uh, ancient hominid that, that took a bite of a banana and said, wow. Uh, maybe because uh, its other favorite food um, died off. It wasn't available anymore. So I'd love to hear you guys take on, on that as well, how it relates to synchronicity and and to the, the I think, um, evolutionary uh, predilection and, and gravitation towards the experience of synchronicity, towards opening our sensory inputs at moments where we really need to listen. Yeah, I really like that framework. In social psychology, that's called a relevance structure. Sure. And what a relevance structure is referring to is what I was earlier calling a, a structure of mind, right? And right. so we sort of move through our experience, filter, and our filters are based on these relevant, you know, I think neuroscientists say that uh, at any given moment, uh, defined as a second, right? that your nervous system is receiving 11 million bits of information, right? But your conscious mind is only able to interpret about 200 bits of information, yeah. right? So that reducing valve from 11 million bits of information to down to 200 bits of information, that represents a 55,000% reduction, right? Yeah. So... You know what is it that what is it that's reducing that perception, and that that's what we would call relevant structures. In your evolutionary framework, we could say that um, you know once you have identified what your food sources are, like that becomes that becomes a structure of mind, a relevant structure that is limiting your attention. Like you become more more tuned in to the shape of banana leaves, right, so that you can see them against the sea of foliage. More clearly, sure. but if that food source, if that food source suddenly becomes absent, then yeah, that relevant structure is no, that relevant structure of mind is no longer there, and you begin picking up on all sorts of other, you know, leaves in the in the in the scape of foliage that you might otherwise not have seen. And so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That is a that's a nice, very cogent explanation of of what synchronicity is, at least on the most mundane psychological level. You know, this is sort of cutting against my own grain to even bring this up in some respect, but like to take the the uh, social psychology skeptical perspective on synchronicity as an experience and just stretch it a little further, you know, we, we know now that the human brain has a cognitive bias for 
the inference of intentionality in its environment, you know, like that, that it was, you know, you guys are talking about as far as establishing an evolutionary narrative for why it is that we think and experience life the way that we do, that there was an obvious benefit conferred to us for s suspecting or erring on the side of believing that that rustling sound in the grass is an animal that maybe we should be paying attention to, a predator or prey or mate or whatever. And so, that, you know, this is connected to why people see, you know, the Virgin Mary in a piece of toast, you know, or, or why the knot holes on the side of a tree look like a face, that we do have this tendency to make associations where they n are not necessarily actually there, uh, insofar as, you know, we can define, quote-unquote, objective reality, like, for the purpose of this conversation, as uh, more, you know, the, the general consensus of most people having a conversation about reality. You know, I, I kind of think that that's probably the best we can get. Yeah. But, but, but like, to, to say that, uh, you know, like you just mentioned a moment ago, Tony, to say that does not, uh, it doesn't get rid of the profound bizarritude of these experiences of extraordinary meaning. And specifically, like, it's almost unfair for us to have a conversa conversation about synchronicity without invoking Carl Jung, who is the one who, you know, ushered this term into the, into the world. And for him, it was, you know, it was specifically an a causal principle linking internal experience with external events. You know, the the famous example being that he had some woman on his psychotherapist's couch who was recounting a dream about a scarab. And at that moment, this little golden beetle started batting against the window of his office. And that, it, that uh, kind of, it was the wrong month for a June beetle. It was the wrong season. And, and uh, the strange appearance of this bug meant so much to the woman that she had a, a psychic breakthrough. Uh, you know, she, she, something shifted in her, that he, that Jung, as a therapist, wasn't able to access simply through conversation. That it was that there's something about synchronicity that is specifically about uh, you know pointing to this relationship between the inner world and the outer world that that we that modern science is currently insufficient to properly explain. And so, you know, we're really getting into the uh, you know, the, the still molten rock that's, you know, pouring out of the ground on the island of human understanding when we're addressing this. Like, this is, this, as far as I'm concerned, synchronicity is, like, the hot issue because all of our, all of our sciences now are turning inward to try and understand the mind-body relationship, and we're, and, and it seems like we need um, a you know, we may we may end up having to give up this sort of basic relationship uh, about cause and effect, and one thing leading to another thing, and accept that that science is really more uh, honestly and more basically about 
correlations and just noting consistent correlations. And in which case, you know, uh, science may ultimately be in a hundred years primarily the study of synchronicity because we'll, we will have abandoned this notion that we can really reliably and reproducibly study cause and effect. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Sure. Um, Tony, I, I, I want to hear your thoughts first and foremost. Uh, there's one quick thing I, I think I might toss in there, which is in uh, DSP or digital signal processing, uh, the signal to noise ratio, which is, you know, the extrapolation of uh, uh, sort of the determ determination of valid bits and information sent through any electronic signal versus that which is noise and somewhat irrelevant. And that uh, if you uh, are into that kind of thing, um, you can actually use high process noise diagnostics to trace through a circuit and uh, find components that might need to be replaced or might be sending different signals than you expected through the noise, through that which is otherwise irrelevant for the signal itself. Uh, that's an interesting concept. I hadn't heard that before. And I'm going to incorporate that, the signal to noise ratio. Um, yeah, I mean, kind of just uh, addressing what Michael was saying and also sort of taking the late philosopher Terence McKenna's advice, which was to uh, answer the question that you wish had been asked rather than the question that was actually asked. Um, I would just sort of like to address the, you know, that building off this notion of the signal-to-noise ratio, that it is worth noting that um, there's a psychological phenomenon called apophenia. Um, and what apophenia refers to is the um, mistaken impression that every random event in one's life holds meaning specifically for you. In fact, it's one of the diagnostic criteria for mental illnesses like schizophrenia. Um, Michael, you had also, I can't remember, I, I cannot recall the name of the term for the psychological phenomenon of like recognizing faces in the ceiling or in the clouds or in grains of wood. Obviously, we all do that from time to time, but that is also one of the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia. In other words, the schizophrenic is um, admitting far, far too much information into their conscious mind, which you would call that just no the noise, the signal-to-noise ratio is receiving much, much too much, is, is just receiving more noise than signal. And so, you know, synchronicity is it's just one of those fuzzy phenomenon that... Um, it is, it's, it's, you know, given this framework, it is obviously an aspect of expanded consciousness. If expanded consciousness means, you know, receiving more than your allotment of 200 bits of information per second in your conscious awareness, um, maybe if you bump that up, you double it to 400 bits of information because of some you know, relevant structures that have recently become irrelevant, um, that can that can be beneficial. But you know, if you uh, if you sort of quadruple that to where you're receiving 800 bits of information um, per second, then it, it may be the case that now you're starting to flirt with um, 
you're starting to flirt with mental illness, you know, and a person that is, um, you know, believing that every random detail of the world is referring specifically to them. Um, but now, now we arrive at, you know, a whole fresh can of worms in terms of the relationship between mental illness and visionary experience. I don't even know if we want to journey down that pathway. Yeah, let's do it. We can, yeah, we got we got time here, and and I think there is also a parallel, even again, just to take it back to electronics, is kind of a, another a dimensional exploration of that, which is um, the the idea that you can have in a in a computer system an overload, uh, or in an electronic system an overload, uh, the idea of overclocking. I feel like those uh, those parallel somewhat a lot of our uh, uh, in in the DSM uh, what is it DSM five now uh, criteria. DSM six mm-hmm. coming up, um, the idea of like a, a overstimulation or uh, hypervigilance, um, uh, chronic anxiety, those kinds of things. I feel like they're actually somewhat similar to opening up too many ports, to uh, um, having difficulty differentiating uh, the signal in the signal to noise ratio, and uh, social media. All those things definitely hold a, um, a significant series of factors in that equation. So um, that's that's my take. On, on how to look at, you know, for now, um, my interrelation between technology and, and humanity as being somewhat echoes of each other and not being too dissimilar, but, but strikingly dissimilar in other ways, too. Well, so there's there's this issue of relevance that we, we keep coming up on because, you know, mental illness is relative to the society in which individuals of a particular neurological type are born and raised. And right. so it's it, it's when we say that someone is schizophrenic, it's because they're looking at the corner of the room like a kitty cat. You know, they're they're seeing something that we don't see. And actually, you know, Phil Dick, uh, the science fiction writer Phil Dick, wrote uh, a, a number of really fabulous pieces in his. Uh, you can find in his collection of essays on the nature of madness. And he was my first introduction to the idea that that we're that these people are not wrong so much as they are irrelevant. That they're perceiving realities that you know maybe children were perceiving before they learned that the adults didn't care. And well, I might, I might differ just ever so slightly with with you on that note. Um, Michael, and that, um, let's see, how shall I say this? The, you know, a schizophrenic person, it's, maybe they're perceiving something that the rest of us are not, but I never, I never get the impression that the schizophrenic person is able to interpret what it is, to correctly interpret what it is that they're seeing. Um, so even though, uh, you know, for... You brought up Philip K. Dick. Um, he was you know, very, very fond of amphetamines and amphetamine dopaminergic, and so elevated dopamine, artificially elevated dopamine levels, will you know create a psychosis, and a psychosis is essentially uh, an incapacity to correctly interpret your reality, right? So, um, I mean, I, I, I sort of, I, I guess I, I respect the notion that a schizophrenic, you know, especially insofar as that is 
oftentimes aligned with visionary experience. Perhaps they are perceiving, uh, I think, in our framework, they're obviously perceiving more of reality than um, what we would call a normal person, but I don't get the impression that they're able to interpret what it is that they're receiving. Um, and I think that's what, that's when mental, that's when mental illness becomes problematic is the person feels, you know, they use Philip Dick, you know, he had this certainty that there was this, you know, vast active living intelligence system that was, um, hiding on the dark side of the moon that was influencing all of human affairs and human history. Um, I don't, I don't really know that we have any reason that that is the case, you know? I, I think we can take him at his word that he was perceiving, you know, the presence of some greater intelligence, but um, whether or not that's a benevolent or malevolent, you know, force, I'm not sure that, you know, the, the mind of a mentally ill person is prepared to, to make that distinction. I don't Definitely. know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, we don't really... I, I think the issue here is twofold. As far as what you're what you're pointing at, one is that I don't think any of us can be really trusted to make any kind of final determination about our experiences in isolation. And I think you know conversation is an essential part of our experience and our definition of reality. And so when we're having experiences that no one else is having, there's no one else to to bounce it off of to test it. You know, and I think that that's a huge part of it. But another part of it is that there is this kind of messy relationship between the states of consciousness to which we have access and our own level of development psychologically. And I think that it, it, it seems to be the case from psychological literature that as people get older and wiser, which is not always the case that one comes with the other, but that that wisdom seems to be about the, the tolerance of ambiguity. It's like, how, how long can you keep your mind from clamping down on a particular story about what you're experiencing? You know, how, 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 uh, th how long can you retain that, that beginner's mind and that sort of classical skepticism? And so, you know, I'm not, I don't, I, th I think that obviously most of us are probably wrongly interpreting our, our sense data all the time, but Definitely. we, but we are doing so uh, within a context of people who agree with those determinations because the wrong interpretation sort of falls below the radar of social evolutionary selection pressures. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking the confirmation bias uh, of sort of that uh, zero to one information state, you know, uh, whether or not it becomes relevant uh, or irrelevant. Um, yeah. So, so, but, you know, the, the thought that we, the thought that we're not dealing so much with sanity or insanity so much that all of us are insane and then we we fall into clusters of of relative practicality with our hallucinations and like relative consensual agreement on our hallucinations and i think that 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 kind of gets back to your earlier point tony about like there's no point in really 
it's not really fair to discuss whether or not this stuff is real, uh, but perhaps, you know, the only way that we can really talk about it is, is in terms of uh, its applicability to our lives. And the amazing thing for me is that so many of the synchronicity experiences that are reported by people are of profound importance, that it's not just, oh, weird, you know, that's not quote-unquote a coincidence, but that it seems, it does seem to suggest a transhuman intelligence, something else, you know, something operating that we can't understand. And this is where you get into this issue of, of uh, you know, apothenia or pareidolia. Are we experiencing our own body's unconscious mind, or are we just, you know, off the loop? Well, uh, Tony, I'd love to get your input on that. I guess I'll, I'll take this for, for a second, unless you want to. Um, sure, sure. Cool. Uh, so I, I kind of um, want to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's, um, it, there, well, that's a hard one. It's, you know, I, I guess I'm struggling to find my, my words here because, you know, I've, I've had my own set of experiences that, that sort of would seem to defy any, um, um, any explanation other than some, um, any, any explanation other than magical thinking, to put it, to put it simply, right? And that is, that's, that's not something I, you know, my, my academic training has, that it doesn't really permit me to, to go there very frequently. Um, but I think in my essay, I, I kind of, I, I, I drew upon this quote from, I believe it was Isaac Asimov, and he says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And so, you know, when I say, when we use this word magical thinking, I think what we are reaching for is, is we're realizing that like our current, what I call technologies of mind, you know, our current techniques for making sense of our reality have, you know, we've, we, we sort of reached, we've reached their limit occasionally when we have these truly um, uncanny and improbable examples of synchronicity. And so, yes, that feels like magic because now we're, we're, we're dealing with this more highly advanced Technology of mind, a more high, which is to say, a more highly advanced means of interpreting reality than we do on an everyday basis, um, and so yeah, that prickling astonishment that feels like magic uh, is really just, I think, that confrontation with this um, uh, this advanced technology of mind that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do find that, and I, I consider myself a rather hard-headed empiricist, but I do find that way of thinking very, very alluring, right, to believe that a moment of synchronicity could eventually lead to sort of a momentum of synchronicity, where everyone is sort of falling into sync with everyone around them, um, leading to the greatest good for the greatest number, or something like that. Sure. Uh, 
Tony, do you mind if I if I uh, kind of riff on this for a second with a quick? Uh, I'll try to make a quick anecdote, um, which is uh, as closely tied to what you just mentioned as I think it could be in my personal experience. So, uh, Michael, I think I told you this one. Um, years ago, I worked for the uh, uh, Minnesota Food Association on an organic farm in, in Minnesota, um, where we helped to train. Uh, uh, immigrant families to till the kind of land that we had, the kind of soil and, and plants available and everything. And um, We had a, yeah, yeah. a cu- couple that came up uh, as part of the work share program so they could actually work a little bit during the week and, and get a cheaper uh, box of veggies at the end of the week. Um, they were really awesome. I, re- I always loved hanging out with them. They were really kind. Uh, and they wanted to get married. So uh, one day we were talking about, I think, like pick- picking some kind of like summer squash and... Uh, they said they wanted to get married in a beautiful place out in the country, and, and they wanted to keep it cheap because they didn't have that much money. And I uh, I didn't want to tell them this, but I had had a vision um, uh, a little while before that, listening to Boards of Canada's uh, Campfire Head Phase at the very last track of the album called Farewell Fire. I saw this uh, this vision, uh, not on anything, nothing else going other than, other than being really tired, maybe dehydrated, um, in this clearing out in the uh, the land that surrounded the uh, the farm. And I had seen in the vision two uh, girls in sundresses chasing each other, a bunch of people in tuxedos and fancy dresses, and um, out in the middle of nowhere, it seemed very strange. So I took them out to the clearing, and I showed it to them, and I said, I know the people that own the land here. You guys maybe could get married right here, and uh, you could do it real cheap, and everybody's going to be happy, and it's gorgeous. And um, I didn't hear from them for a while, but came back to the farm after a bit, uh, being on vacation, and... Um, there was a bunch of cars and, and tunnel-like people, and, and as I drove in, I started to realize the clearing I, I'd been sitting in um, had a tent in it, and I went there, and the uh, first two, th- two things I saw when I came across the, uh, um, the trees into the clearing were two girls in sundresses chasing each other, a bunch of people in tuxedos and fancy dresses, and uh, the groom ran up to me, gave me a big hug, and said, Hey, can you play guitar for my procession? It's going to be in an hour. And I ended up playing right there in that clearing. Uh, and they're happy to this day and, and, and married, and I think they have a family now, too. Nice. I didn't tell them the vision, though. I still have not told them that. I didn't want to, like, trip them out, you know, because uh, it's it's uh, one of those things. I want to keep on the DL until the right time. That's, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people have had experiences like this, you know, and there is there is sort of a closet or, or what in the sciences they call a file drawer effect where... We just tuck away these things because they don't make "quote unquote" sense according to the model of reality that we inhabit. No, they don't. They really don't. I, I still can't make of uh, of that what I, I feel like I might one day. And you know, there, I, I often think about there's there's sort of a difference uh, during the Cold War between the way that Americans practiced science and the way that Russians practiced science. So you end up. I mean, not to open this whole can of worms, but it's evident in the way that the UFO phenomenon was explored in these two countries. Also the way that psychic phenomena were explored, that in Russia they treated it more like engineers, and they were not so concerned with whether or not they understood the mechanism. They led with mass testimony, and then they investigated things from there. Whereas it seems that the case in the United States and Britain, our cultural tendency is more to ignore things that we we don't understand uh, mechanically. 
at least, you know, this is as far as like our social disposition in recent history. And, and so, you know, you have people that are at very high level institutions like the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab who have done very tight, very well supported research on these issues of synchronicity. And, you know, they've, they've managed to, you know, to create these very cleverly designed experiments that stand up to the, the rigorous scrutiny of metastatistical analysis. And yet, after 27 or 28 years of this research, they still have no idea what was actually happening. Only that, it's happening. So, you know, it seems like to stand on the shoulders of Richard Tarnas here, who's uh, a historian who wrote the book Cosmos and Psyche. I, he, I, I don't know, Tony, do you know Richard Tarnas? He's out there in San Francisco. Uh, no, the name does not ring a bell. He teaches uh, with Stan Groff at the California Institute of Integral Studies, but he wrote a book called Cosmos and Psyche in which he makes the argument from a study of history, and it took him like 30 years to write this book. It's, it's an absurd work of scholarship. It's amazing. That, that he believed that synchronicity is writ large in astrology, and that what astrology is actually studying is the synchronicitous relationship between the movement of celestial bodies and the mundane events of human life. That it's not a causal relationship that in, the, in the same way that the, the harmonic motion of the minute hand, second hand, and hour hand, it's not like the hour hand causes the minute and second hand, but that there's some implicate order or underlying mechanism invisible uh, from the face of the clock that is responsible for all of these things, and that he, he are, suggested that we're on the cusp of an entirely new scientific paradigm that's capable of actually examining these acausal mechanisms, which gets back to this thing about, you were saying earlier about how the Big Bang is, is happening, that it's one moment. Sure. You know, like Alan Moore, who's super occult, fantastic, magical writing, actually kind of forms a nice counterpoint to your own books in, in an odd way. Uh, he's sort of like the, the dark wizard version of your, your uh, I don't know, court minstrel or something. But... <laughs> but but Alan Moore had an interview where he he said that the notion of time that he believes that he espouses is eternalism and that time is a crystal that that every moment has actually happened at once and that we just have this experiences as uh, organic creatures of there being a flow of moments but that like almost like uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, that if you were to look at us from above the crystal, that we're just sort of worms carving our way through this thing that is every instant simultaneously. And that's, you know, maybe that's what's required of us in order to understand this in a way that doesn't slump into magical thinking. Hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I um, hmm. I'm just. I, I guess I'm wanting to find the pragmatism in that in that way of thinking. Um, I guess just to avoid just to avoid the temptation of getting too cosmic and cerebral and you know losing all um, you know, relevance or function for the for the life of an individual. Um, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, it almost sounds like you're saying that I can't remember this guy's name. Can you say it again? Richard Tonus. Uh, that you know, it almost sounds like he's saying that um, everything that is going to happen to you has already happened, and you are just a worm in a tunnel. And uh, if you could, you know, look at that from an expanded point of view, you would see that you know every that you're in this tunnel or the, on, on the surface of this crystal, and there's not a whole lot. There's not. There's no real free will. Um, for the individual in that scenario, that you're just sort of moving through, um, that your life is just this sort of playing out of that which was, you know, long ago preordained. Am I am I saying that correctly? I don't know that. Yeah, this is where it gets kind of funny because it does. It's yeah. it's obvious that we can't <laughs> we can't really have this conversation without addressing the ancient philosophical argument between free will and determinism. Right. Or or I would I would interject for a second, Michael, and say we also can't really have this conversation in full without the, the modern cultural milieu relevance of of quantum physics. If we want to take it in that direction, like the idea of you know Vonnegut's. Uh, Worms uh, tunneling through reality being perhaps maybe just the, the collapse of a quantum state, like the observation of that which is otherwise not necessarily random, but in a, um, a pre-observed, uh, you know, fuzz or, or quantum foam. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's a couple different ways that I've, I've seen people pick at this particular knot. And one of them is that when we get to the fork in the road, you know, like the Yogi Berra deal here, uh, not to uh, unintentionally invoke uh, the, the quantum multiverse, but uh, that when we take a fork, when we reach a fork in the road, we take it. And I think, you know, as, as far as a heuristic for whether we're sufficiently addressing problems of this complexity. The, when, we, when we get to the fork in the road between free will and determinism, they, they're both such persistent structures philosophically, and they're, they're both so undeniable in their own right, that it seems, again, that, that what we're talking about uh, is that you know, free will is an experience thing, and determinism is a descriptive thing, and that they're sort of perfectly correlated as uh, partial and insufficient descriptions of this other thing that's beyond both these basic internal-external divisions. Does that make sense? So it's like, I don't know that it really matters. Yeah, and also, I think, I think you're correct. I think, that, I think, I think the, the basis of that 
in this you know epic debate between free will and determinism is is really that they're operating on two different scales, and that um, you know if you want to if you want to talk about free will, you know think of it this way: like you're like you're you're sort of a passenger on a you know a juggernaut of human history, right? This sort of runaway train, um, and there's, there's this question of like, well, does the individual have free will? Like, well, sure, you know, you can get up and change your seat, right? Um, if you're, you know, if you have a tremendous amount of will, you know, you can even, you know, change the, you know, maybe the, the railroad cart that you're in, right? And go to the the bar cart or something like that, right? But you're still going to be on that runaway train, right? That, in the, in the direction that that runaway train is headed, I think that that is deterministic. That um, the juggernaut of human history, I think it does have, uh, it does have a direction. And that, you know, given the conditions that were, you know, coded into our nature and our DNA, I think that it is it's sort of it's moving into an inevitable, um, although as yet to be determined, uh, transcendence or outcome or apocalypse or who knows what, right? But right, yeah. So an individual still has free will, but I don't know that any individual's free will is terribly relevant to the the direction of. Of um, the story, <laughs> of the story, sure. Yeah. I mean, um, that's that's a that's a pretty uh, pretty solid way of uh, reflecting my current sentiments on it, which are um, full disclosure, highly influenced right now by the fact that I don't have uh, school until the end of the month, uh, <laughs> and uh, my finances are okay, so I've just been kind of enjoying my time and uh, thinking a lot. Um, and actually playing for the first time in uh, over a decade a video game, which is uh, uh, Star Wars The Knights of the Old Republic, uh, which came out in 2003 or something, so it's about 13 years old and I'm finally playing through it. And um, I, I don't want to say life can in any way be distilled down to a video game, because I've always felt pretty adamant about the idea that out of all the games out there that are possible, life is the best one uh, by infinite orders of magnitude. In terms of the complexity and the variability, the customability, uh, all variables thereof. But in in Knights of the Old Republic, you can choose to be either sort of a, a Jedi or a Sith or anything in between, the dark and the light side of the Force, so to speak, uh, on that gradient. You can customize your characters. You can do whatever you want within a, a certain uh, chronology. But ultimately, the the story is the story. Uh, the uh, hero's journey is uh, a archetype uh, that the story does not deviate from. Um, uh, and I won't give spoilers about the game, even though it's 13 years later, uh, just to cover my bases, but I'll, I'll leave it there, because uh, I know it's kind of trivial, but I, I feel like, Tony, you might want to take it back back to Earth here. It seems like you've been mentioning the, the idea of pragmatism, which is my favorite philosophical trajectory, typically, which is how, how do we apply it to who we are, where we are, what we're doing? How do we make this worthwhile to us? Like, why is this podcast worth it to us, you know? And uh, I can feel your uh, inflection in your voice that you want to discuss why that is, you know? Oh, sure. It's, 
You know, I think I think the real utility of this of this way of thinking is um, it's 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 a way of admitting one's own uh, Socratic ignorance. You know, it's a, it's a way of admitting that um, and reminding oneself that you know I don't have everything figured out, and um, just because my psyche automatically constructs these um, relevance structures that guide me and also limit me. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's worth, I think it's worth flexing one's, um, flexing one's psyche from time to time to, um, open oneself up to what other information might, might, might make it through that might, you know, reveal to me, to use your analogy, a better food source than a banana, if such a thing is possible. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it's just, it's, for me, that's that's the real value I think of synchronicity is if you're, especially if you're sort of working hard in your life trying to manifest you know one specific vision of yours, and you're meeting an obstacle, and you're meeting an obstacle, and you're meeting an obstacle, right? I think that you know this way of thinking could actually be very pragmatic, you know, as, sure. as a means of. Um, moving you out of your like trajectory, like well, this is what it's supposed to be. This is how it should be, and you know, potentially opening you up to new sources of information or inspiration that might um, reveal to you, uh, you know, a, a solution that you could have never foreseen um, in advance. I'm speaking as a as a novelist. I can testify to the fact that you know I've resolved problems in my in my in my stories in ways that I never could have um, imagined you know on the night that I sat down to begin writing that story right it was it was only it was only because I sort of dared myself to sort of wade into you know the unknown future of the story that I was writing that you know, solutions that you know, I could have never imagined sort of presented themselves to me. And I think, I think that's a way of, you can apply that to, to your own, the story of your own life as well. Yeah, or the uh, the hero that we all are on the journey that we all have to journey. Um, so, uh, Tony, man, that was, that was really fun for me. I hope other people out there uh, were able to you know, tap in at, at your level and, and uh, get from that some, some good pragmatic uh, juicy stuff for uh for your week here or whenever you happen to listen to this and um uh definitely check out tony's website if you get a chance i, I highly recommend it and we'll link to that here in the comments again um, michael and tony i'll let you guys take this one out um, evan again and this is future fossils yeah i guess really my only thing before we put a, a pin in this and you all go off to read nine kinds of naked in in just a couple of days is Tony, one of the ideas that we've had about this podcast is this notion that the future is listening and that uh, as, as it is that the, the, the Big Bang is constantly roiling out ever greater, that there are more people paying attention to a, a given moment of the past than were alive at that time. And so there's almost a... You know, if this trend continues, then we can expect 
that there will be you know vast numbers of people that are archaeologically investigating recordings like this one and and uh, the podcasts of our many friends to understand better what it was like to be a person at this time. And so I guess, you know, if you, one of the things I'd, I'd love to do as a tradition for our guests, and, and you can start this tradition, is, you know, if you, if you had a message for the future, if you, you know, the, what would that be? Hmm. That's an excellent question. So you're saying that I am the progenitor of this new tradition. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's that's at a least, mantle. At least locally. Um, you're the first in line. <laughs> here's what I would say. <clears throat> no ancient wisdom is as great as that which is yet unspoken by the living. Did you just drop your mic? Because you might you might need to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tony. That that was that was excellent. Uh, again, uh, a good first place right there in terms of the chronological uh, procession. Yeah. Thanks so much, you guys. Uh, this is yeah. Been- what, this is this has been a this has been a delight for me. It's always fun to um, flex the more academic side and um, uh, Evan. Uh, it was great to have an opportunity to know you, and Michael, as always, it's always a pleasure to uh, um, to bounce ideas around with you. Totally, cool. Well, likewise, man. And and uh, um, we didn't really get to your uh, your Tom Robbins affiliation because I'd imagine you already got enough questions on that one. But uh, I was definitely struck by the review that he gave you for for one of your more recent volumes, and uh, congratulations because he's one of my favorite authors. So. Yeah, he's the writer that offered me the phrase, the um, interpenetration of realities um, that, I, uh, that I used earlier in our discussion. Indeed, yeah. So I, th- I thought we might want to bring him up at the very end here and, and look forward to reading your work. Uh, everybody out there, I definitely recommend taking a look at uh, Tony's essays and, and books. Uh, and thanks again for joining us, man. Probably won't figure it out.